0: past two weeks, people across the U.S. have defied pleas to stay home amid the COVID-19 pandemic, to protest police violence against Black people in America. The protest began in Minneapolis, that's where a since-fired police officer named Derek Chauvin was charged last week with third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter, after pinning George Floyd down with a knee on his neck for nearly nine minutes. Chauvin's murder charge has since been elevated to second-degree murder, and three other officers were charged with aiding and abetting murder. There were also protests in Louisville in response to the death of 26-year-old Brianna Taylor, who was killed in March when police broke into her home as part of a drug raid. But according to the family's lawsuit, no drugs were found at the scene, and the person that the officers were seeking was already apprehended. The FBI is now investigating Taylor's death. The protests against police brutality have since spread to all 50 states across the U.S., as well as around the world in places like London, Berlin, and Copenhagen, where demonstrations are taking place in solidarity. We are now months into a pandemic that's highlighting the extent to which Black people have suffered from inequality in the U.S. for hundreds of years. Black Americans are dying at a disproportionate rate from COVID-19 compared to white people. And the unemployment rate for Black Americans is higher than the national unemployment rate. And now, a series of deaths at the hands of police officers and others these past few months have once again spurred people into the streets. Many of those protests have been peaceful. Some of those protests have turned violent and led to looting. Earlier this week, in both St. Louis and Las Vegas, some police officers were shot and hospitalized. In a number of cities, people have vandalized and looted both major and local businesses. As the protests continue, police are also taking heat for using extreme tactics to counter even peaceful demonstrations, exhibiting the kind of force that protesters are coming out against. Protesters and some journalists have reported getting hit with rubber bullets and pepper spray, tear gas, and even police cars. It's a dynamic, emotional, and stressful time. And there's a lot going on. Today, we're going to help you clear through the noise and give you some context on what you're seeing and hearing about, or maybe what you're a part of, and explain what's being discussed as potential solutions. Okay, so there are a few concerns these protests are highlighting. One of them has to do with the military equipment being used by police at some protests. That's because of a Defense Department program called 1033. It was created in the 1990s during the so-called War on Drugs. And it basically allows the U.S. military to give its extra equipment to local police departments. Think MRAP vehicles designed to protect against improvised explosive devices, as well as assault rifles, grenade launchers, and helicopters. One of the most high-profile examples of that kind of equipment being used to respond to protests happened in 2014, after a police officer in Ferguson, Missouri, shot and killed 18-year-old Michael Brown.
1: The SWAT teams warned protesters several times to disperse, and then they said things were being thrown at them, and they let loose several rounds of tear gas.
2: Every canister they were firing was tear gas, because all around me, every 10 feet, was a canister that was discharging. I had my mask
1: on. The police are still standing there. They have their gas masks on.
0: After those protests, President Obama reigned in that program and prohibited local PDs from getting certain kinds of military equipment. But in 2017, President Trump eliminated those restrictions. And this week, he called for additional measures in response to the protests. He's called for governors to activate each state's National Guard to support local police departments responding to the protests. So far, they've been activated in at least 32 states and Washington, D.C. The instances in which protests have turned violent either because of protesters or from people infiltrating the protests, have also bolstered calls for a heightened response. But researchers have pointed out that the militarization of police departments and increased use of things like SWAT teams in the US doesn't necessarily help. A study by Professor Jonathan Momolo of Princeton University a couple years ago found that not only were these tactics not helpful in diminishing crime, they also likely weakened the public's image of police meaning people didn't feel safer now that police could drive MRAPs down Main Street. So now there's a growing bipartisan push at the congressional level to once again rein in that program. Beyond that, though, there was also a bipartisan push in Congress this week to address police violence and the extent to which institutional racism is impacting how law enforcement treats Black Americans. Black people are killed by police at a disproportionately higher rate than white people. Black Americans make up less than 13% of the US population. But according to data from mappingpoliceviolence.org, which works to track police violence and use of force, black people accounted for 24% of people killed by police last year. Stats like this and horrific events like the death of George Floyd have led to increased calls for police transparency. Through things like the use of body cameras, as well as more accountability within law enforcement. To make sure offending officers are investigated and prosecuted. Increased police transparency also means things like literally sharing information. That's something Kimberly Burke says is a necessary step toward finding solutions.
1: My full name is Kimberly Cecilia Burke. I am a visiting research fellow at the Center for Policing Equity. I'm the former project director for the DOJ-funded National Initiative for Building Community Trust and Justice, and I am presently a doctoral student at UC Berkeley's Department of Sociology.
0: The Center for Policing Equity partners with law enforcement to both gather data and inform change within police departments. The goal is to address racial equity both within those departments and with the communities they serve. But getting that data to help police departments inform those changes is hard.
1: As you know, there's no national standards for police data on use of force or uh, traffic stops, pedestrian stops, and part of the problem with solving racial disparities in policing is first just identifying, measuring them, and... Developing, as we said, data driven measures to uh, reduce those disparities.
0: But Burke pointed out a few things that could happen right now to make positive changes.
1: There are some immediate things that could save lives. Right? If, if there had been a, a federal ban on carotid restraints, George Floyd might still be alive, right? Or, or neck restraints, what it's commonly called chokehold, but in use of force policies, it's a carotid restraint. And it's still within policy in countless departments. Why is there not a federal ban on that, right? A better understanding of the threshold for use of force. Why is the use of force not only within policy, but um, supported by the Fourth Amendment for? misdemeanor, non-violent level crimes. Those types of uh, legislative changes could save lives immediately.
0: When it comes to long-term fixes, Burke points out one of the biggest obstacles in establishing stronger trust between police departments and communities involves acknowledging our past.
1: We cannot understand a police civilian interaction in the moment that they are interacting right we have to understand everything that led up to that and it is rooted in the state's failure to invest in black and brown and marginalized communities in terms of housing and education and health care and the things that we know actually increase public safety so what we're asking officers to do is be a a stopgap for a government that refuses to acknowledge their role and their failure in actually providing the types of social supports that would increase safety in those communities to begin with.
0: Over the past few weeks, we've seen instances in which law enforcement representatives speak out against police violence. Take the National Police Foundation, for instance. It's a nonpartisan organization that provides research and training to criminal justice agencies to improve policing. A number of its staff used to work in police departments. And last week, the foundation released a statement condemning the actions of police officers involved in George Floyd's death. And pointing out that those actions are not representative of the many law enforcement agencies they had previously worked with. We've also seen state governors and police officers join protesters in speaking out, kneeling, and marching side by side. The Kissimmee Police Department marched alongside hundreds of community members tonight. A
2: powerful moment of unity between police and protesters as Green Bay Police Chief Andrew Smith joined peaceful demonstrations downtown.
0: Just like you, I was sickened.
2: It was one of the most horrible things I've ever seen, to watch a police officer wearing the uniform that I wear proudly, doing something as despicable as that.
0: Burke says that solidarity and acknowledgement from police officers who want to make change is powerful, but that the conversation may need to be taken many steps further.
1: We have seen some success in departments with um, police leaders who are willing to acknowledge that history of harm, who are willing to address how those racial harms still impact the interactions between their officers and these community members. And that is powerful. And I don't want to to take away from those advances and the reforms that are really trying to be taken by progressive police leadership and community advocacy groups. However, at the same time, If we don't have a divestment from punishment and policing um, and an investment in these social supports, we are going to continue to see these failed interactions between police and community members, and they harm officers. And when officers are harmed and experiencing the trauma of being on the front line of these communities riddled by violence and poverty, then they are going to police poorly. They're going to carry that violence on and perpetuate that in ways because they're they are distressed and stressed and have negative affect and have this one tool this one tool of violence and coercion to solve a problem that is the result of state violence and coercion um sorry (laughs) i i so so yes so i i think that we are seeing reform in in terms of reconciliation talks and uh, movement towards procedural justice and uh, addressing biases implicit explicit within police officers and that is powerful but at the same time we are seeing right now that this is an ecosystem of failed institutions and officers are being used as a stopgap for a much larger problem that the government has to has to face and has to address in these other social support systems.
0: Burke points out that, from her perspective, as someone who has been in meetings between police and community members, the thing that is getting missed as part of this conversation right now is how interconnected communities and police already are.
1: It is not by chance that we're seeing more police officers stand united with protesters. Police officers have a front row to the failure of U.S. democracy and their safety, their well-being in terms of mental health, um, in terms of their the trauma that they're experiencing either firsthand or secondhand and being sent into these communities to try to address these, these problems directly relates to the health and safety and well-being of those communities. So any conversation that perpetuates this idea that, that there is either Blue Lives Matter or Black Lives Matter is a false conversation. That is not a real divide. There are so many police officers and so many community members who understand that we are on the same side or we need to be on the same side for there to be true transformation. And so I would encourage all of us to just sort of look at any binary, any any us versus them conversation as what it is, which is a misdirection that prevents and impedes true transformation.
0: So what's the scam? This week, Protests around the country brought to light a number of concerns about law enforcement in the US, including how militarized it's become and how institutionalized racism within police departments has impacted people of color. At the federal level, Congress is trying to figure out how to address these concerns. And increased transparency from police departments through the use of body cameras and the acknowledgement of implicit biases within the system are some of the short-term solutions being put forth. But there's also a larger conversation at play right now about how we think about public safety. For some, that's about increasing police presence, even sending in the military if possible. For others, it's about changing the way we think about public safety entirely, creating a new ideal that both law enforcement and communities should work towards.
1: Public safety is protecting the sanctity of lives. It's protecting our right to have a dignified, and, and respectful life. Um, and so any conversation about public safety that is you know, so focused on burning targets or Whole Foods is neglecting and is a misdirection from, from the core of public safety, which is, is human life, a dignified human life that we should all have access to, which Black America and so many other marginalized groups has never been afforded.
0: Coming up, a lot of people have been putting out lists of organizations to help in the fight for justice. Some of those organizations are raising money for things called bail funds. We'll dive into how those funds actually work and the issues with bail reform in the U.S. next. George Floyd's death has motivated many Americans to look for ways to help fight systemic racism in the U.S. On social media, people and companies have been circulating lists of organizations accepting donations. This includes the George Floyd Memorial Fund, created by Floyd's family that takes care of things like funeral costs and education for his children. You've also likely seen links to donate to bail funds around the country like the Minnesota Freedom Fund or the Brooklyn Community Bail Fund. If you're wondering what exactly those funds do, we're gonna break it down for you. But first, here's how the bail system works generally. We should note there's no national bail system. It varies state by state and sometimes county by county or even city by city. When someone gets arrested, that means they're suspected of committing a crime. But remember, in the U.S., you're innocent until proven guilty. So once a suspect is booked, they can sometimes be given a few different options. They can pay a bail based on a set amount for different common crimes. Or they can be released on their own recognizance, meaning no bail needs to be paid and the suspect promises in writing to show up to all future court proceedings. Or normally for minor offenses, they can be released with a citation to appear in court at a later date. Or they have to remain in custody until their first court appearance, known as an arraignment. If the judge sets bail at the arraignment and the defendant is able to pay it, or they're able to secure a bail bond, they can return home. But if that person can't afford to, they have to wait in jail until their trial. We spoke to Bernadette Raboy, a senior policy analyst at the Prison Policy Initiative a group that conducts research to spark larger campaigns about the criminal justice system. She told us why cash bail has been a controversial policy.
2: Under our law, under our Constitution, these people are presumed innocent. But with cash bail, what happens is they're not treated like they are innocent. Um, They are serving that time because they can't afford cash bail. And, you know, cash bail... Too often has very little connection to anything like the charges someone is actually facing, how strong the case is. Because the reality is, at that point, when someone's first arrested, there's oftentimes very little evidence. And it turns out this affects a lot of people.
0: According to legal scholars at Harvard Law, on any given day, American jails imprison nearly half a million people who have not been convicted of a crime. That's around 70% of the people currently held in jail. Scholars argue that this practice of cash bail discriminates based on socioeconomic status and race, highlighting the disparities in the U.S. criminal justice system. Here's why. Having a cash bail system means that low-income people can't afford to go home, while people with wealth can essentially buy their freedom. The American Bar Association actually refers to this as wealth-based incarceration. And it has a disproportionate effect on communities of color. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, Black and Hispanic people combined make up over half of the pre-trial jail population. In fact, studies show that these minorities are at least 10 to 25% more likely than white people to either be ordered to pay a cash bail or to be denied the option for pre-trial release. And they may end up waiting months or years before their trials begin. Not to mention, the mental and physical cost to those who are detained is significant.
2: It's extremely destructive. Um, It's very dangerous for people to be in jail, even for short periods of time. You know, it's also just destructive because oftentimes people, you know, it feels like they've hit rock bottom when they go to jail um, and they oftentimes lose the only like glimmers of hope they have in their lives at that point, whether that's a job, whether that's going to school. um, It just completely interrupts someone's life during a period when they are supposedly presumed innocent by our law. And these are just allegations.
0: The argument in favor of cash bail is that, hey, by paying it, you're more likely to show up to court with little to no cost to local governments and agencies. That's according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Despite that argument, a recent study by the Charles Koch Institute found that 57% of Americans favor not putting people in jail just because they can't pay bail, except for extreme circumstances. And some states and cities are looking for ways to enact bail reform. Bail reform means, among other things, ending the practice of cash bail limiting the number of pre-trial detentions, and appointing defense lawyers sooner. Another component of bail reform has to do with something called risk assessment instruments. Basically, these are algorithms that some judges use to determine the risk that the person would be a danger to public safety while out on bail, or that they won't show up to court for their hearing. But reform groups say to tread lightly, or not at all, with these approaches. That's because the data that's being input into these tools can also reflect biases and inaccuracies. And the results are still up to the judge's interpretation. Some of the cities and states that are moving to limit or have limited cash bail include New York, California, and New Jersey. But despite support to change the system and the fact that major cities and states are already dialing back, there's still no widespread consensus on what pretrial justice should look like but reform could have a significant impact
2: on jail populations. Here's Raboy. I think uh, the most important thing people should know about cash bail is, one, probably its impact on jail populations. Um, I don't think a lot of people know that it is the majority of the people in jails uh, that are there because they can't afford to pay cash bail. So it's really You know, it's not this, like, small, tiny thing that we could fix. If we ended cash bail, we could get so many people out of jail uh, because they really are what's driving jail growth in this country. So for the time being, cash bail remains a
0: crucial part of the American criminal justice system. Although intended to make sure people show up for their hearing, many experts say the impact is that it's causing the number of Americans behind bars to rise by criminalizing poverty and disenfranchising minorities, and that it contributes to a justice system that doesn't actually guarantee equal justice for all. So how does this relate to organizations you've seen on social media or already contributed to? You might have seen over the past week of protests, over 600 people were arrested in Minneapolis and over 2,000 have been arrested in New York. That means many are going through the process we just laid out and some will need bail money. Remember, bail funds are paying cash bail for people who can't afford to be released before their trial. And that includes protesters who have been calling for justice in the case of George Floyd's death and for racial equality in the U.S., Donating money helps pay bail, and that bail means protesters can avoid pre-trial detention, even if they couldn't afford it. The Minnesota Freedom Fund says it has received over $20 million in donations and is now encouraging people to donate to other local organizations and George Floyd's family. Other organizations like the Bail Project, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and the ACLU are also focused on bail reform along with advocating for additional changes to the criminal justice system. Keep in mind though, dismantling systemic racism doesn't come from one singular action or donation, and how to help is not one size fits all. If you are looking for resources or organizations to donate to, we've rounded up some suggestions on the SKIM's Instagram feed. And as Americans think about how to take action, one to consider is voting. Federal and local lawmakers all play a role in how the criminal justice system works. We've also got more on how the presidential candidates stack up on social justice on the skim.com slash 2020. And now we're pressing pause on the latest developing stories and taking a moment to reflect. Whether it's the Zoom chats or Google Hangouts with friends and family, or having more time with your loved ones, including your pets, people are exploring a lot of different ways to preserve this moment in time. Take photographer Shane Clemenson. With a lot of events being canceled or postponed, back in March, he offered free, on-the-go, and socially distanced front porch portraits of families in Indiana where he currently lives. He even captured an outdoor socially distanced wedding, Around the world, hundreds of women photographers contributed to a project called The Journal. Specifically, they're capturing the female experience during the pandemic. To take a look, you can check out their Instagram at wpthejournal. But you don't have to be a well-trained photographer to help mark the moment. The Greenbrier Historical Society in West Virginia put out a request to the public to help them collect things like photographs, documents, and personal accounts to archive the impact of COVID-19 on the region. And in Washington state, one of the early hotspots of COVID-19, Seattle's Office of Arts and Culture is encouraging residents to showcase homemade art. They're calling it hashtag art displays for homestays, where musicians are performing curbside concerts. Residents are decorating their sidewalks with chalk and decorating their front yards. If you saw that photo circulating on social media of a giant shrub with googly eyes and a face mask, known as the shrub and scrubs, that was put up by Seattle residents. Sometimes it's important to press pause. In moments like this, pressing pause can also mean taking time to reflect and learn. And The Skim has some recommendations to help you do just that. To sign up for more, head to theskimcom slash press pause. And that's all for Skim This. We'll be back in your feed again next Friday. In the meantime, let us know what questions you have about what's going on in the news right now. You can email us at audio at or call and leave us a voicemail at 646-461-6370. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com.